sperm cells survives inside the fallopian tubes so they are sitting around there waiting <laughs> up to up to five days and then come this egg diva late to the party and so why have we been telling it the other way around hmm is has it got something to do with gender roles welcome to the south bank center podcast Come with us on a journey to explore where arts and culture meet the gender agenda, politics, identity and economics, where we'll bring you discussion and debate from this year's WOW, Women of the World 2018 Festival. In this podcast, we're bringing you the wonder down under, myths, facts and tips about women, our bodies and sex. This is a steamy talk by the two founders of the blog, The Genital Area. I'm Sarah Raphael, I'm the editor at large of Refinery29, which is the leading digital media company for women. Thank you very much for coming. Welcome to this discussion of The Wonder Down Under, A User's Guide to the Vagina, which is an amazing book. It's definitely the most exciting science book I've ever read by Dr. Nina Brockman over there and Ellen Stockendahl, who wrote this book while they were medical students in Oslo, which is an incredible feat. And they work as educators in sexual health for young people and minority groups. So we'll start off by talking about the two of you and can you tell us how you met and why you decided to write this book about this subject matter? I am Nina. We met in med school, like you said. We had both uh, signed up to become sex ed volunteers. In Norway we have this great organisation that has been running since 1976 that travels around and do sex ed for teenagers. We started working there and then after a while uh, we, the two of us started a project that they had teaching sex ed also at refugee uh, centers around Oslo. So we led that work and wrote a guide, a guide, yeah. Yeah, a guide on how to do sex ed for <coughs> minority women, uh, taking more into account like female dental mutilation and such things. That one thing led to another. Uh, so after having worked as sex ed teachers for five years, we started a blog called the Unneliva, which translates uh, to the genital area or the genitals. But in Norwegian, it means both genitals and the life down under, which is much more poetic uh, than just <laughs> genitals. That was a blog for both men and women of all ages, really. Through our work as sexual education teachers, we have gotten so many questions from uh, women from all cultures uh, that were quite often exactly the same ones and they were very often quite basic. What we see is of course that um, in Norway and uh, many other places uh, the sexual education is uh, not enough. You don't learn what you need to know about your body to make good choices about your sexual health, to be confident in your own skin. For example, a lot of women are afraid that normal physiological processes that happens in their bodies every day is something that is wrong or something that they should be ashamed of or something that's signs of disease. And if we don't know how we normally work, if we don't even know that, then how can we make choices when it comes to important questions like what contraception to use, if you should have an abortion, who to have sex with. 
So we were doing this uh, teaching and saw all these basic questions and we just had to start writing to reach out to a larger audience. When this book came out, people wanted it, wanted to read it. And yeah, so that's, that's why we're here. So there's so much to cover in the book, but I wanted to start by asking about the female erection as it's on the talk description. And I'm sure people are very interested to hear. I was really shocked to read about that. So tell us, how is that possible? I think before we move on to erections, I need. I think we need to talk about the clitoris because we can't talk about erections without including that. So the point is that when we're uh, fetuses, all of us and all men, we shared the same genital tubercle, it's called. And that is the origin of all forms of genitals. In week 12 about in the utero, we all have this type of genital that looks somewhere in between a clitoris and a penis. From that, you can develop a female genitals or male genitals or somewhere in between. That means that the penis and the clitoris have the exact same build. So what we normally think of as the clitoris, you know, the little knob at the top, that's just equivalent to the penis head. The penis has a shaft, of course, and inside the shaft you have erectile tissue. And we have exactly the same in the clitoris. It's just that it's hidden beneath the surface. So the clitoris that we know is just the tip of an iceberg. And underneath the surface we have a huge organ that is equivalent to the male penis with four legs containing erectile tissue that surrounds both the urethra and the vagina and is lying below the labia. When women get aroused, just like men do, this erectile tissue will fill with blood and grow to twice the size as it normally is. And that is an erection. In women, it's hidden beneath the labia and it will also change color and become more purple, red, dark, comes blood engorged, so it's, uh, it changes color, just like the penis. As I said, the most exciting science book I've ever read. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, hair removal. The first chapter talks a lot about hair removal and you debunk a lot of myths around hair removal, one of which you say that it's a myth when people say that hair grows back thicker when you shave it, which is another thing I was surprised to hear. What other things do you think women should know about hair removal? There is a growing movement of women now thinking that shaving is dangerous and that you shouldn't do it. That it's bad. That it's bad. Uh, and we have to uh, nuance that because uh, we think it's bad that women feel like they have to shave. That's the bad thing. But shaving in itself that's not dangerous. I mean, the roots of the hair are connected to a lot of nerve endings. So by touching the hairs, you actually get an extra sense of... You heighten the sensation. Yeah, you heighten the sensation of touching the vulva. So uh, for us, it's just important to tell women that they can do whatever they like in that aspect and that science is not pushing them to do either. I saw, a, it's a Norwegian doctor, a stand-up comedian, I saw his show once and he had this joke about hair removal. Do you have this show in the UK? Like a medium, a medium? who's telling you what's going on, if you're, there's a dead person in hair or... And it's like, oh, I a feel number a dead of person them. talking. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, have that? Probably. <laughs> yeah, okay. So he was comparing it to that. It's like, the hair is dead protein. So when you chop off hair on your vulva or anywhere else, they can't communicate to their root, saying, hey, hey, I've been, I was cut, I, I, was, I was cut, cut, I was cut up here, you know, so down there. Um, 
they have absolutely no idea that their product up there has been mowed down. <laughs> so, so the hair root just keeps doing what it's always doing, yeah, just growing a bit every day. Uh, it's kind of like teenage boys, you know, when they start getting hair, some of them start shaving a lot because they hope it will get thicker. But it won't. You just get like sores. Uh, <laughs> the but reason why it feels yeah 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 the reason why it feels like the hair was thinner before it shaved, of course, is that it gets worn down after a while. And I was also shocked to learn that we are born with all of our eggs in our ovaries, which I don't yeah. know if everyone knows that or not. Yes. Could you tell us some egg stats? How many are we born with, and what happens to them as we get older? We don't learn that in school, but we've all heard the story of the brave sperm cells that are fighting their way up to <laughs> meet the egg first. We will get back to that story and retell it later, but first to say, retell it correctly with no bias, that is. No bias. No bias. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, we are born with, how many? 300,000? Well, I mean, this is an approximation because yeah. women are born with different amounts. I mean, when we're still in utero, we're talking millions but they deplete very quickly right around birth. So when we come and see the light of day for the first time, it's about 300,000. And then each month, while we're still kids, we're kind of doing like test runs. So your body is like taking these follicle, egg follicles, and practicing to become real eggs. So already when we're children, we're losing a ton of eggs. So by the time we're hitting puberty, we have about like, I think it's... I think it's 60,000 eggs. And then each month when we have our period, we are losing up to a thousand eggs. And now you might be saying, well, a thousand eggs, 60,000 eggs, that doesn't add up if you have a period for 40 years. But that's because you lose less and less eggs each year. And that uh, someone thinks that that might also be part of the explanation why it gets harder to get pregnant when you get older, because it's... Uh, fewer eggs to choose from yeah because that's the point we have been told the story that we have all these sperm cells are competing and fighting amongst each other while the female equivalent the egg is just sitting around waiting for the uh, the knight on the white horse or whatever you say like strolling up and taking her first and really uh, there's quite a struggle going on in the ovaries as well like Nina said up to a thousand eggs are competing every Every month to be the best egg, the best of be all the, the eggs. chosen one. The chosen one. Yeah. And that chosen egg ovulates and is uh, caught by the fallopian tubes and uh, bobs along into the um, uterus. The best way to get pregnant is to have sex in the days before ovulation. And that's because sperm cells survive inside the fallopian tubes, so they are sitting around there waiting <laughs> up, to, up to five days. And then come this egg diva late to the party and so why have we been telling it the other way around hmm is, has it got something to do with gender roles and how we picture women and men maybe it's strange isn't it I think so yeah I uh, was also shocked to read about Freud and the difference between vaginal orgasms and clitoral orgas yeah, orgasms. Yeah. Well, Freud had many interesting theories. Um, <laughs> uh, and I don't know how many of them are still believed in today. But the point was that in 1905 he gave out uh, theories of sexuality, essays on um, his theories on sexuality, yes. And one of them was that there was a difference between clitoral and vaginal orgasm. He claimed that women were supposed to get vaginal orgasms 
clitoral orgasms that was only reserved for young, immature, so young girls, before they had kind of discovered men. So when uh, women got older and were uh, ready to get married, in, of course in a young age at that time, like 17, 18, 19, then their seat of sexuality should move to the vagina. If that didn't happen, then there was something wrong. With, with a woman, <laughs> with a woman, of course. So the point was that if she couldn't manage to get vaginal orgasms, if she still needed clitoral stimulation, still was interested in touching her clitoris, then she might be suffering from the extremely vague uh, disease frigidity, which, um, <laughs> of course, is a mental illness. I mean, it's really interesting how they, he just made up this theory, excusing every single man who's not who's not able to uh, make his woman come. Um, uh, <laughs> And it was just like, no, no, she's just mental. Um, <laughs> it's not your fault. Um, and everyone believed it. Everyone bought it. So, so, and we're still kind of living in this world where Freud's theory of the frigid woman who can't get a vaginal orgasm is valid. The truth is that an orgasm is an orgasm no matter how you achieve it. So there is absolutely no physiological difference between an orgasm caused by clitoral stimulation and vaginal stimulation. They have tried to find a difference, there is none. So why are we trying to create this hierarchy of orgasms where the one orgasm that almost no women actually manage to get is the one that we perceive as the most, the one we're all trying to achieve. The clitoris is what gets women off. Yeah, and we need to we need to stop talking about all the other forms of sex as foreplay and vaginal sex as the only kind of real sex that you can have. Because, for example, uh, women who have sex with other women, uh, they don't have real sex if you follow this model. They and only have foreplay. They only have foreplay. It's like a lifetime of foreplay, and it's it's <laughs> it's it's absurd the way we use language to uh, to create these uh, truths. And even a lot of women even identifies as virgins if they have not had vaginal sex but whatever else they have done it just doesn't count and that's so it's so strange because that's what's best for women that's what makes women come but it doesn't count yeah, yeah. Um, okay let's move on to health issues which is obviously a very big focus of the book I love the line that said all healthy girls who've reached puberty will find discharge in their knickers every single day because I think that's one of the things that really isn't well taught in schools for example why do you think girls aren't taught these things I don't really know because it's so strange that we aren't taught about discharge enough. Uh, the result of that, of, of course, is that uh, women are uh, think that something is wrong with them when they produce discharge and uh, see their doctor to uh, get an idea if the amount and the color and the consistency is... Uh, normal. Discharge is something that uh, fertile women should produce every day because it's what keeps our vaginas clean and healthy. Without it you're prone to <coughs> yeast infections and bacterial vaginosis and dryness and itching and irritation so it's it's super important to have it there. But uh, a lot of women uh, approach us or their doctors with concerns about their discharge and the way also the discharge and the vagina or the vulva smells. I think it comes from this idea that women are are meant to be clean, meant to be pure, untouched, you know, white dresses at the wedding. And it's, it's a very, very limiting thing for us, especially when uh, the liquids that we produce are so important. We don't poop or fart or no, do anything do any of that either. So no. it's no, 
I think all women know that that can be a limitation when you're in a new relationship, for example, and you're not allowed to poop at your partner's house. Uh, uh, and you're together the whole time, so you're getting more and more constipated and uh, bloated because you can't fart and you can't poop. And, uh, you cannot have discharge and it's really... You have to swap your panties around yeah. all the time. Uh, so, uh, I mean, this is just a part of that whole thing. You know, women are supposed... We're, we're supposed to be these mysterious yeah and machines. that's what's so horrible I mean women are women get the idea that they should carry all, all their burdens alone and in silence and that's we don't get help to uh, for a lot of uh, like everyday health issues for women because we're just supposed to tackle it it's like uh, menstrual pains I mean some women have so severe menstrual pains that it, it can be horrible I mean they've measured the pressure inside the uterus uh, for uh, women with dysmenorrhea which means uh, severe menstrual pains and the pressure in there can be higher for these women than it is during the last phases of labor so and also uh, these new headlines like menstrual pains can be as painful as uh, heart attacks then finally uh, the eyes of people are, are opening and they're starting to take this seriously but of course women have known forever that uh, menstrual pains can be severe but if you for example have to stay away from work because of menstrual pains then people are like why can't you just handle it uh, you feel like you are weak yeah, yeah I think we women have been bad as well at not supporting each other on that because yeah but that comes from the culture of course I mean yeah. it's uh, we're not supporting each other because we're not allowed to speak up about it yeah and even in the media with tampon brands or sandwich towel brands their adverts they have the blue liquid yeah uh, falling falling into the towel instead of you know, <coughs> it, only last year the yeah. brands started putting Ooh. red liquid to actually yeah luckily finally mm. yeah um, no I think uh, we as women we have been taught from we're young that we need to not offend other people when i say people i really mean men talking about discharge and these things are considered vulgar when in fact they're like medical necessary things to talk about sometimes and also periods you know you're not supposed to talk periods and show that it's actually blood because it might be offending to men yeah i mean our value as these uh, clean beautiful creatures are more important than our own comfort and our health because this is really our health the reason why we're having so many issues and why science hasn't come further and why medicine hasn't been interested in women's issues is because uh, we're not demanding it. And media coverage has increased on these issues. Yes. yes. Fortunately, luckily, finally, yeah. over the last year or so, we did a week called Rag Week at Refinery29, which was addressing our problem with periods. And we're learning more and more about specific health conditions we should talk about in the book, such as endometriosis, yeah. which mm. Lena Dunham wrote about extensively over the last kind of six months, her struggles with that. How common is endometriosis? And can you kind of explain for people who don't know? Has ev everyone heard about endometriosis? Yes. Is there anyone here who does not know what endometriosis is? Yeah, we didn't Okay, either. yes. Yeah. <laughs> no shame. We had never no heard shame. about it before we started med school. <clears throat> and uh, that's the problem, I mean, that people, uh, the public haven't really heard about endometriosis on, uh, up until recently when uh, people like Lena Dunham started to bring it out in to uh, broader attention. And that's strange because one out of 10 women are suffering from this condition. Of course, the severity varies quite a lot. It can be mild or it can be really bad. And what endometriosis is, 
actually that tissue that originally comes from uh, the inner lining of the uterus, which is what turns into your period eventually, kind of moves and uh, settles elsewhere in the body. For example, on, uh, on the gut or on the bladder or on um, the lung even. We like to uh, compare them to senior citizens who are tired of living in a cold places and move to Costa del Sol to have a great time. But they still act like their home to take Norwegians, for example. They don't wear sunscreen. They read Norwegian newspapers. They just have a good old Norwegian time down in uh, Costa del Sol. It's the same with this um, lining, the colonies of endometrial lining that settles elsewhere in the body. Whenever it's time for the period, these areas bleed too. And just imagine like a random bleeding zone somewhere in the body where it's not supposed to be bleeding. Of course, uh, the police gets angry and the police, of course, is the immune system. So we get an inflammation reaction, which can lead to uh, scar tissue. And uh, if you have a lot of scar tissue around your inner genitalia, then that can lead to uh, infertility or uh, chronic pain, pain during um, intercourse. It's not yeah. good at so, all. So the symptoms of endometriosis are severe menstrual pain. Often that starts <laughs> one or two days before the period and it can last a day or two after the period. It often gets worse. So it's a period pain that is... You know, when you have your first period, it can be very hurtful, but for most people it gets less painful. But for women with endometriosis, it just keeps getting worse. And also after a while you start getting pains that are chronic and also the deep penetration pains during sex. Mm. And then it's the infertility, which is a very sad side effect of endometriosis and then one of the leading causes of infertility in the world. Mm. We hadn't heard about it before we went to medical school. Uh, a lot of you hadn't heard about it. I mean, if one out of every 10 men had had a disease that were affecting his life in such a severe way then I'm sure we would have heard about it. And you did your TED talk which has over two million views now on the Hyman myth. Can you tell us a bit about that topic? Yeah, Elnus even <laughs> brought our Hyman. She, we are very <laughs> fans of do-it-yourself. Yes, I made this. Right Elvis <laughs> made that. So this is our hymen. A lot of us uh, think that the hymen is like a virginity seal, so that it's something that's covering the vaginal opening, something that will be ruined the first time you have vaginal sex, and something that will cause a bleeding the first time we have vaginal sex. That's kind of the two myths about the hymen, that it's something reserved for virgins, and that it will be uh, harmed and bleed the first time we have sex. But the truth is, and this has been known in the medical community for over a hundred years, the fact is that the hymen is more like this. So it's like a scrunchie. Like all scrunchies, it's actually very elastic. So you can you know, stretch it in all directions. And for over half of women, it's so elastic that it can easily accommodate a penis, a tampon, a cucumber, whatever you want to put up there without sustaining any damage. 
uh, then it naturally follows, you know, that if uh, the hymen is like this and it can stretch and it doesn't take any harm, if you put anything uh, up there, then you won't bleed. And that's what you see in research as well, that only uh, about half or less than half of women bleed the first time they have sex, even if they are virgins. They're not lying, they're just simply not bleeding. And it's because their hymen has taken no damage from uh, the sex. And then that leads to uh, the fact that you can't look at the woman's genitals and see if she's a virgin or not. And this might seem obvious to you guys here. But just last night, we got an email, for example, from uh, it's this uh, incredible woman in the UN who's leading the UN's program in Iraq, teaching Iraqi police about these issues. Because in Iraq, if you are, for example, you have been raped, then it's mandatory to go through a virginity test to see if you're t telling the truth because they think that you can actually see on the genitals if uh, the woman is a virgin or not and if it looks like she's a virgin then you haven't been raped yeah. and so this has huge effect on women's lives and that's just one single example so this is uh, still such an important thing for women around the world when we know that this has been known in the medical community for over a hundred years that you can't look at a hymen and see if you've had sex or not. You can't look at the bleeding to determine if a woman is a virgin or not. Then why are we still talking about the hymen? Why are women still subjected to virginity checks? Why are still women being killed if they don't bleed on their wedding night? It's really, really, really tragic. Yeah, it's horrible. And ju just to add some more number to this, we have uh, two uh, studies that are done on um, hymen examination when people know that there have been penetrative sex there. The first one is um, the study of uh, 36 pregnant women where they examine their genitalia and they only find, you know, uh, clear signs of penetration in two out of these uh, 36 women. What we're saying here, it's true. You just, you can't see the difference. What we usually say, like, if you don't believe in 34 cases of virginity births, then uh, this is bullshit. And also... <laughs> uh, <coughs> This is uh, more um, sad or, or terrible statistics, really, but a lot of the research on the hymen is done on children that are subjected to, to rape also. One study that I, that I read said that uh, when um, you're examining young girls who have been uh, raped and where you know that this have happened, in 95% of the cases, then uh, the hymen uh, shows nothing. This is, this is where they've really been uh, incest uh, cases and sexual abuse cases of children. That's where they've really done a lot of the, the groundbreaking work on this. Tragic, but it's so important because for a long time they thought that they could actually prove whether or not the child had been abused by looking at their hymens. And when we now know that uh, you can't see it, a lot of people have gone clear because they haven't found damages to the children. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it works the other way around too. It's really, really important to know that the fact that you can't see anything doesn't mean that nothing happened. So we have to start talking to women and, and girls uh, and trust what they say instead of looking for this evidence that we know that we can't yeah. necessarily find. Um, I also wonder Dark. if you've only got about... Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, but I think that's why the book is so amazing because you talk about very, very light topics and kind of accessible and interesting and then you also talk about really serious issues which is the point of writing the book and which is why everyone needs to read the book because we need to get these messages out there um, globally. 
The last point I wanted to talk about is labiaplasty and the um, huge rise in this surgery, particularly among young women. Obviously, whenever we read about it, we know that there is no normal vagina that doesn't exist. Everyone is different, <coughs> but there still exists a huge amount of anxiety in young women, particularly around their labia and what they think it should look like. Why do you think this anxiety exists? Do you think it is porn is to blame? Like, where does this anxiety come from and how do we let young women know that yeah, there is no normal? Yeah, there are several reasons that we think can be the cause of this problem, but just to look at what the problem is first. Uh, the problem is that uh, society has created, the, created this kind of ideal vulva. People have in their head like uh, a kind of a vulva that's perfect and that a lot of women think that they should look in one certain way and we have studies that shows that this is not bullshit uh, because women who are asked to pick out the vulva that they find most normal or good looking or beautiful they all pick the same one and also uh, women who are asked to draw their ideal vulva they draw the same kind of vulva it's like a vulva with even colors no hair and shorter inner than outer labia and kind of tidy looking yeah. and what we know of course is that all vulvas look different but it's horrible because young women aren't prepared for the changes that happens down there when they happen in primary school we talk about how the penis grows and how the penis changes so when a man has a larger penis than a boy it's no surprise I mean he knew that that would happen probably uh, been looking forward to it probably even looking forward to it but for women we are not discussing the fact that the vulva is changing its shape a lot and might also change color during puberty we're not discussing that fact so when more than half of women end up with inner labia that are longer than the outer ones which is not the case for children but which happens during puberty and also uh, a vulva that uh, can change to uh, darker color patterns and of course the hair and everything. And you get ruffles. Yeah, you get like, like a yeah. rougher skin, like a velvet. Not, not, uh, no, I'm not talking about rougher skin, I'm like a ruffle. Um, is that the word? Yeah, yeah. Like, what is like, I'm, yeah, like my shirt. You're getting like, uh, I think most people have uh, seen uh, a girl's, like a small girl or baby's uh, genitals. They're very clean. They're like uh, very even and no ruffles. But okay, women, I understand the word ruffles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that uh, if you look at uh, grown women's genitals, there's a lot of ruffles. I mean, <laughs> some people do continue to have a very clean looking, even uh, genital. But when we mean clean, of course, we mean tidy. Not, yeah, not, not it's clean. nothing to do with, with cleanliness. cleanliness. No. Yeah, no, but like very tidy, more pre-pubertal look. But uh, a lot of women get these ruffles. And then when you haven't been told that before... Yeah, it comes as a big shock. Yeah. And also you should actually how do you all check out uh, the Vulva Gallery. I don't know if you've seen that on Instagram. It's a wonderful artist from the Netherlands, the Hilde Atlanta. Uh, she's great. She actually draws portraits of women's uh, vulvas that people send in. And you see the extreme diversity of how people look downstairs. It's uh, wonderful. Nina and Ellen are doing a signing outside, so please buy the book. Um, it is, yeah, thank, you. thank you so much. To hear more from WOW 2018, check out the South Bank Centre SoundCloud and join the conversation on Twitter with hashtag WOWLDN. <laughs>